We are in the first chapter of Acts. If you would turn to that. Stephen Covey uh, has written a number of books on leadership and, and uh, business, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, First Things First. And in that book, First Things First, he talks about being at a seminar, and uh, the speaker in the seminar uh, brought out a bucket, and uh, in that bucket, the speaker had uh, a number of rocks uh, prominent and began to put rocks in the bucket until no more would fit in there. And then uh, the leader of the seminar said, is, is this full? And uh, the people said, yeah, that's, that's full, seeing that you couldn't get any more rocks in there. And then he uh, went and he brought out a jar that had gravel in it, and he poured it over the rocks, and the gravel all fell down, and he shook it down a little bit, and they all fit in there as well. He said, is this full? Well, they're a little more wary by now. Well, maybe not. Uh, Probably, but may, maybe not. So he brought out a jar of sand and poured the sand in and shook it down and it fit in. And then he said, uh, is this full? And they all said, no, that, you know, that's not full. And he said, very good. And he pulled out water and poured in water until it was full. And then he said, okay, what's the lesson here that you learned from this illustration? Somebody raised their hand, being good, you know, efficient business people. Uh, and this person said, well, there's gaps in your schedule. If you really work at it, you can always fit more into your life. He said, no, that's not really the lesson the lesson is this. If you hadn't put the big rocks in first, you never would have gotten them in. You might see that illustration sometime where they actually have uh, uh, gravel and those other things, and then they try to put the big rocks in, and of course, it doesn't work. And the point there is that these big rocks represent, from Covey's uh, book and his perspective, the important things, the important things in your life or in your business, in your world. But the key is this. The key is we've got to figure out what those big rocks are. What are the big rocks that must be fit in? Because if you pick the wrong big rocks, it's going to wreck the rest of your world. Today we're going to look at some of the big rocks in the beginning of the church in Acts. I'm going to read you this passage. I want you to ask yourself, okay, what, what are the big rocks in this passage? We will see others, but let's read beginning in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. 
Remember that uh, Jesus had ascended already. And it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons uh, was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who um, have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that uh, today you would enable us to see what those big rocks, those important things, those essential things in beginning the church and sustaining the church must be. Lord, we look to you for this. We pray that your spirit would move among us and move our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that if you paid any attention, you saw at least one of the big rocks, and that is prayer. Verse 14, 
all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, the version I read says uh, devoting themselves to prayer. Some of your versions may say uh, praying constantly or continually. I want you to note, and we're going to see this over and over again as we see the church developing, how different that is, how really, for many of us in our day, how counterintuitive what they were doing would be. Imagine that. Remember last week I told you, uh, we talked about the ascension of Jesus and him going away, how that would be better for the disciples. And we, we talked about why it was better because of the coming of the Spirit and uh, all of that. But think, of, think about this, what they're doing. There they are, they're praying. Now in terms of, of timing, if they understood the Great Commission, which they had just been given, they had this huge task ahead of them. And with that task, they, told, uh, they were told they would be equipped and so on. But just imagine, if you, if you had any drive, any, any ambition to get something done, what it would be like to be sitting there and praying instead of getting started out there. You know, our, our tendency is to, uh, you know, look, if, it, if we're really busy, we'll get that prayer in somewhere. You, you know what Martin Luther said? He said, uh, uh, I, I've, got, I've got so much that I have to do. I am so busy that if I don't pray for at least three hours, I'll never get it all done. Isn't that just the opposite of the way we tend to think? I'll get my prayer in later in the day, and then what happens? You lay your head down later in the day, and you haven't had time to pray, to fit it in. Think, think what, uh, you know, what I'm afraid the tendency of churches in our day would be for this. Let's, okay, we've, we've got this big thing, we've got to, uh, let's, let's get our strategy together. Okay, we'll send out a notice and we'll tell the purpose of the meeting, and then we'll, we'll get everyone to come, and uh, uh, we got to get somebody to set up the tables, and uh, in addition to that, who's going to make the coffee? Somebody, of course, bring donuts so that we can have this meeting and get started. And it says what they did was devoted themselves to prayer. What do you think they're praying about? Well, I suspect, we don't know, we don't know what they were praying about, but I suspect there was some time of confession. I suspect some of them were, were feeling that they had let their Lord down. I suspect that they were praying about the their fears of the future. 
may be praying about their fears of failing Him again when the rub comes. I suspect they were praying about what they would say to people. How are we going to know what to say to people? And I also suspect that they prayed that the Spirit would come, even though it had been promised. Praying for something that is promised does not show that you don't believe the promise. It shows you do believe the promise. That's why we pray even for those things that are promised. Now, those who have studied revivals uh, that have taken place at various times through history, there are different characteristics, but, but those who study it say that there, there is one thing that you will always see, and that is before a revival ever comes, there is going to be concerted prayer. It may be a small group of people, but it is people who are pounding the throne of God again and again and asking for revival. That's the case here in Acts. Now, what's it mean to us? Well, this isn't the only big rock, but I want to stop right here and give us some application and challenge each of us to make a prayer about our church and our ministry your priority. We can't expect revival to come if we're not praying for it. We can't expect to fill the sanctuary and need to go to another service if we are not asking God to do that. We can't expect the church to grow unless we're praying for it. You cannot expect your loved ones to come to Christ unless you are praying for it. Because prayer is the means that God has chosen to bring about His decree, to bring about His will. He doesn't need us. We need Him. And that's what prayer shows. What else were they doing during this time? What other big rocks did they put in the bucket? Well, one that you might have had a hard time categorizing, but I think it'll make sense when I, I tell you, is uh, they were addressing painful issues. Think about what they had been through. And that in, if you look in 15 through 20, you see that, that uh, account and rather gory account of uh, the death of Judas. There's 120 there. And I guarantee you, they had painful issues to deal with before they were to leave there. And Peter rightfully addresses it. Now, what kinds of things were they dealing with? Well, think about it. Uh, when Jesus died, there was confusion. There was probably blaming one another. 
probably blaming themselves and certainly blaming Judas. They probably had an anger at Judas and also felt betrayed by him. Not only had he betrayed Jesus, they probably all felt betrayed by him and they were dealing with anger, no doubt. And then they also had to deal with a suicide. And that's hard. Some of you have had to deal with that in your life. And it's one of the more difficult things we have to deal with in this life when we do. There is often guilt, confusion, sometimes anger, many times things that are unresolved when people are dealing with that. And that's where they were. Now, how did Peter put it in perspective? Look at what he says in verse 16. And this is specifically about Judas. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He later quotes from Psalm 69 and 109. It, this is his perspective. Now, we, we've got to make sure we understand this. I'm not saying Judas is off the hook here. He was completely responsible for his actions. But the other side of it is that all of that was a part of God's big plan. And that's what Peter is saying here. That I have no doubt that, that when Judas betrayed Jesus and he was crucified, some thought, well, Judas has wrecked God's plan here. And Peter is saying, he didn't wreck it. He didn't mess up God's plan. God used him, even with evil intent, He used him and his actions to fulfill His plan. That's how great God is. And he brings them back to that. Judas could not have prevented God's plan. And so we see this focus upon the Word of God. He takes them right back to that. I suspect that as they were praying, they were sharing the Word of God as well. And these psalms were ones that uh, commentators say many probably would have memorized and so these portions of these psalms come to them. He didn't ignore the painful situation, but he, he, he wouldn't let them be paralyzed by it. He said, let's, let's get it in perspective. And I think that's because they were being constantly in prayer. I think God gave them the right perspective because of their uh, consistent prayer. There's a third big rock here in preparation for ministry and that was choosing leadership. Uh, verse 21, so one, of, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time uh, that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until 
the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to uh, 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 the resurrection. Verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. Here we have nominations. They were looking at the qualifications, weren't they? These are the qualifications uh, to be an apostle, those that were there. The only exception to these, these qualifications, apostles were those that were picked and granted authority by Jesus, those that were with him from the beginning and a witness to the resurrected Christ. So they said, okay, who that isn't one of the apostles fits this? And they put up these two men. Now, with those qualifications about Jesus picking them, how could Jesus now pick them? How could Joseph or Matthias qualify and have Jesus actually pick them? They met the other qualifications. Well, this is how Jesus could show his will. Verse 24, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, uh, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, what's the deal with casting lots? This is not the same, let me caution you, as playing the lottery. This was different. In the Old Testament, we see God often showing His will in this way. That was, in fact, the ordinary way when He didn't speak audibly. They would use human, Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament and so, they said, all right, we want, uh, we want one picked. Let's do it the way we have and let God himself show his will. Now, why don't we do that now? You know, we're going to have officer elections soon. We're not casting lots, Okay. We're not going to do it that way. Why don't we do it that way? Well, because we have the Holy Spirit. And that's the difference. That was the way they did it before the Holy Spirit dwelt in believers. And now that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, when we vote, when we cast our vote, we should be asking God to show His will of who He is choosing. That's what Presbyterians do, not because it's a neat way to do it, but because it is through the will of individuals in the congregation that God shows His will because the Spirit dwells within us. So we use those other things, general leading from Scripture, a common sense of those who fit the qualifications 
and then praying to see who God wants, and then we don't do the fourth, and that is the casting of lots. And I want to be encouraging you as well to be praying about that. We're going to have an election in June and be praying that God will show his will through the congregation. Now, in terms of application, I've given you these. Now, all of these are related to prayer, obviously, but I've given you these these big rocks. We, I believe, have a different challenge than the 120 disciples had. How did they keep their first things first? What, What kept them from going out? You know what? They didn't have a clue what to do next. And that's part of our problem is we think we have a clue. We think, and I, when I say we, I'm not saying just St. Andrew's, I'm saying the American church especially. We tend to think we've got it figured out. They didn't have a choice. They didn't have any methods they could rely on. They didn't have any church growth books that they could read. They didn't have the book of Acts to go to. They didn't have seminars. They didn't have buildings. They, and I don't know how they ever grew a church, did not have the Presbyterian Church in America denomination. (laughs) It's tempting for us to rely upon these things. And that can be a barrier. Next week, we're about to open this great building. Thanks be to God for that. We have and we will have even better facilities that we will be able to use for His kingdom. But if you're thinking that we can rely on that building to make us grow, you're mistaken. That's a wrong view. And it would be a big mistake to think the minute we open those doors, that's all we got to do. We have got to completely, totally be utterly dependent upon God's Holy Spirit using whatever we do, using our efforts using our building and all of those, but it's got to be dependent upon God. I have told you about uh, my friend we call Jonah, who is a Pakistani who converted to Christianity from the religion that he grew up in. He was once uh, invited to a church planters conference here uh, in the States, and uh, the, all these young, good-looking church planters got up and they, you know, they were supposed to give a, a report on how their churches were growing and what they were doing. And, um, and then they wanted to hear from, uh, from Jonah. <coughs> and they made the mistake of waiting till the end. And, and uh, they said, Jonah, will you tell us what, what you think of all this? And he stood up and he said, you know, all of these... Uh, 
all of these methods, all of these ways that you are growing churches, he said, it, it's, it truly is very impressive. He said, I am amazed at how self-sufficient the American church is. In other words, how dependent upon themselves. And he was telling me this story, and he, he, he finished his story by saying, I've got to pray to God every day just for my life. I've got to depend on him just for my life, just to live. Ian Bounds, a great prayer warrior, wrote, the, the life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer, and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. The very place is made sacred by its ministry. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. May God protect us from falling into the trap of thinking that we've got something to take to God. God is not impressed by our little uh, bucket brigade of effort to build his kingdom. Here's the big picture. Jesus didn't say, you will build my church. And Jesus didn't say, I will build your church. Jesus said, I will build my church. May he give us a thirst for him that will enable us only to be satisfied when the church is built in such a way that it could be only his doing. Let's bow together. Lord, you have given us so much to work with here. So many resources. But will you keep us? Will you protect us from relying upon them rather than you? Will you, Lord? Our need is for you to build your church. We ask for that. You promised it. And we ask for it in faith that you will indeed do it in such a way that we couldn't possibly take credit for it. It had to be from you. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.